Welcome to the Rugby Pod Stories. In this new short series, we explore some of the most iconic moments in the history of rugby by speaking to the people who were there and uncover the secrets behind these incredible events. If you enjoy what you hear, then please let us know on social media and feel free to share it with your friends. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25000 miles on, I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, Tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey. Sport has the power to change the world. 1995, Johannesburg, South Africa. After 40 years of apartheid rule, whereby the black population were moved to segregated townships in conditions of brutal poverty and denied jobs by the white ruling Africana National Party, times were finally a-changing. It has the power to unite people in a way that little us does. From 1964 to 1992, the country was banned from the Olympic Games, whilst its rugby team was kept out of the sport's first two World Cups in 87 and 91. To black South Africans, the historically white team, along with their green and gold colours and their Springbok mascot, had come to symbolise the nation's oppressive minority white rule. But to the hardline white Afrikaners, the Springbok had come to symbolise more than rugby excellence. It had come to symbolise racial superiority. Sport can create hope where once there was only despair. However, newly elected President Nelson Mandela saw rugby as a way to help lessen divisions between black and white South Africans and foster a shared national pride. He voiced his vision of a rainbow nation at peace with itself and he planned to use this World Cup as the catalyst to achieve that. It is more powerful than governments in breaking down racial barriers. Well, welcome to Ellis Park at this quite dramatic moment. In this podcast, for the first time ever, we uncover the true story with first-hand accounts about what happened to the New Zealand team and the build-up to that final. Fitzy was getting like, you know, two or three death threats a day. And Sean told me then, he said, listen, don't say anything, but there's something's wrong, the boys are sick, there's something going on. When I got upstairs to the doctor's room, it looked like a battle zone, like a scene from a war movie. He said to me on the Friday afternoon, he said, you boys have done this, you boys have done this. Do we tell them? that we can't play on Saturday. If we beat the box here, we're beating Mandela. The World Cup had gone to plan for South Africa leading into the final week of the tournament, where they were all set to lock horns against the greatest rugby team in the world in the All Blacks. Having destroyed England in the semi-finals, with Jonah Lomo scoring four tries, New Zealand were heavy favourites to go on and win the title. But as New Zealand's media manager Rick Salitzer recalls, going into that final week, when you're playing against South Africa, nothing 
can be taken for granted. Our manager was Colin Meads and our campaign manager was Brian Lahore, you know, two of the greatest All Blacks of all time. Those guys had toured South Africa as players and, you know, um, and had tough tours. And so for them, playing South Africa was like the ultimate test. And I just remember Colin calling the team together and going, look, I know you guys have all played South Africa before, but you don't understand what this week's going to be like. You just don't get it. The whole country of South Africa will be united to beat you. Just be prepared for anything because the intensity of this challenge is going to be unlike anything you've ever seen before. Journalist and later media manager for the South African rugby team, Alex Braun, who followed the All Blacks throughout the tournament, explains the historic connection between the South African people and the game of rugby. If you've never been to South Africa, you just cannot understand what rugby means to that country. It's almost like a spiritual connection they have to the game there. And yeah, of course, you know, New Zealanders are probably the best at the game and the best players at the game. But the deep, deep connection that South Africans, black South Africans, white South Africans, coloured South Africans, that they all have to rugby all through that country, is absolutely remarkable. Head coach of the All Blacks, Laurie Maines, wanted to take his players out of the spotlight during that final week, and so called a meeting to discuss how best to steer clear of interacting with the other hotel guests, especially at mealtimes. What we did as a management group, we discussed the very best things that we felt we could do in our hotel uh, with regard to our eating arrangements, that it was a pretty big hotel and we didn't want our players spending too much time in amongst, amongst the public. Well-being as the public are over there, they they are very tough on rugby teams. Uh, just the overwhelming hospitality they show towards them. And we wanted to hopefully get a bit of the hype out of the heads of the players and let them relax a bit and not have to put up with throngs of the public. All Blacks captain Sean Fitzpatrick thought that the changes implemented by Laurie didn't go far enough and that the team should have moved out of their hotel in Johannesburg. Yeah, maybe things that we should have done differently. Maybe we should have moved away from Johannesburg for three or four days rather than being right in Santon there where, where we're right in the melting pot of all, of all that, that fire coming towards us. We should have been out of that environment and come back in on the Friday. Media manager Rick Salizzo remembers how subsequently things started to go very wrong for the team in terms of security distractions throughout that final week. I mean, lots of things changed that week. Like, right through that week, we had a really tight security detail. So, for example, you couldn't ring a player. It would go to the hotel switchboard, and then we had a, we had our own switchboard um, controlled by security guards. But then something happened that week, and, and suddenly all the players were getting calls from all sorts of random people. Fitzy was getting, like, you know, two or three death threats a day, and, and they're pretty, you know, pretty graphic death threats. And then... I can't remember which night it was, but in the build-up to the test, a car alarm went on, on outside Fitzy's window and he rang up, you know, couldn't find any security guards, rang up the hotel reception, like, can you get this car alarm sorted? But no one did, it just went on through the whole night. So it was a really, it was a really interesting build-up. Thursday the 22nd of June, 48 hours before kickoff in the World Cup final, and the New Zealand team had returned to their hotel for lunch after their morning training session. But team manager Brian Lahore noticed that something was incredibly odd with their dining situation. Most of the tournament we'd, we'd, we'd dined a lot of the time, particularly for lunch, on our own. 
Mm. And we thought that would be stupid because it would make us vulnerable. So the management made the decision that we'd always go into the dining room in, in the old a la carte. They couldn't, uh, they couldn't nobble 500 people. On the Thursday lunchtime, I was just going into the dining room and they said, oh, no, no, the All Blacks are in this room over here. And I thought that was strange. And I thought, well, maybe Colin or Laurie had made that decision. So I went along with it. It had to be then that we got, you know, food poisoning because uh, it was at about seven o'clock that night, everybody was sick at the same time. So it was going to that uh, whatever did it happened on Thursday lunchtime. Rory Stain, who was one of Nelson Mandela's close protection officers, was put in charge of security for the All Blacks team during that World Cup. On the Thursday night before the final, Stain took a bunch of players to a movie at Santon City, and as they all had different preferences, they were all spread out across various screens in the cinema. Stain watched a movie with Richard Lowe, and when it finished, he noticed that he looked wretched. Lowe wanted to go straight back, so I said I would go tell Goldie that I would come back for him. As I approached the doors to his cinema, he came out clutching his stomach, almost doubled over. I immediately knew we had a serious problem. We raced back to the hotel. Lowy didn't even make it to the flower bed. He vomited all over the driveway. When I got upstairs to the doctor's room, it looked like a battle zone, like a scene from a war movie. Players were lying all over the place and the doctor and physio were walking around injecting them. I used to be a police officer. I worked with facts. What my eyes told me that night was that the team had deliberately been poisoned. It seemed that the All Blacks had been poisoned during that lunch, and Solitzer remembers the moment when he realised that the situation was getting increasingly more terrifying. You know, I remember being in the lobby of the hotel and just people starting to just arrive, you know, either from the management dinner or from the movies going, what's wrong, I'm not feeling very well. Then, then someone else would show up and someone else would show up. And then you realise that, you know, a lot of that group, so then we started to contact all the various players in their rooms, and it's like, yeah, you know, this guy's down, this guy's down, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, it went really quickly. It seemed to be from memory, you know, we had lunch and then we're sort of talking seven, six, seven, eight o'clock, somewhere around there, guys just started to drop like flies. The team doctor, Mike Bowen, recalls the emergency unfolding rapidly in front of his very eyes and the lack of assistance anyone at the hotel seemed to be offering him or the team, which immediately made him suspicious. Between three o'clock in the afternoon and midnight, I had 26 people who were acutely unwell. I didn't feel I had any support from the South Africans. I wanted to get samples of the food tested. I wanted to get samples from the players tested. And I didn't get any uh, assistance there at all. The team were clearly battling what seemed to be an incredibly strong bout of food poisoning. But how seriously ill were the players 36 hours before they were due to play on the biggest stage of them all against South Africa in a World Cup final? All Blacks captain Fitzpatrick explains. Well, it was the, thir- the Thursday we had the lunch, and on the Friday, you know, a lot of the guys were were sick. Uh, you know, to see to see Pine Tree, uh, one of the great Pine Trees, struggling to get out of bed, um, sort of think, oh god, this is not not good at all, is it? So Litzo continued to try and work through his illness, but it quickly became apparent that that wouldn't be possible. I remember getting a call from one of the Sunday papers at home, uh, just asking me some questions about, about the team and stuff, and I had to. <laughs> I had the 
put the phone down and just take off to the bathroom. And, um, you know, in, in the nicest way to describe it, it sort of was a both ends experience. But I remember talking to Colin Meads and he said that he, you know, and this is the toughest man in the world, that he collapsed on the way to the bathroom and he spent the whole night there because he just physically couldn't get up. Journalist Alex Braun remembers the moment he heard the news that the New Zealand touring party had lost over 80% of their team to food poisoning. Um, I did an interview with Sean on the Friday. Um, he gave me a little bit of an exclusive on the Friday um, because I was doing some work for some of the Australian and New Zealand papers. And Sean told me, then he said, listen, don't say anything about this. Something's wrong. The boys are sick. There's something going on. The boys are sick. And I said, oh, who's sick? And he started rattling off the names of people who were sick. And I said, well, what's happened? He said, oh, we don't know. We don't know. But somebody's sick. Salito also remembers how a number of the squad were saved by the most unlikely of heroes, McDonald. The irony of it is there was a group of guys. So we weren't allowed McDonald's during uh, when we were away on tour. That was one of the team things, which was a real challenge for, you know, Eric Rush and a couple of others. And so Rushy and a group of group of players sneaked out to McDonald's instead of having lunch with us. And of course, the McDonald's crew were all fine. They took a lot of um, pride in the fact that McDonald's helped them through <laughs> that time. After a sleepless night for the majority of the touring party, it was time for the management to try and get to the bottom of what could have caused this outbreak as Dr. Bowen explains. My own observations were that it was um, unlikely to have been an, um, something that occurred incidentally or, or without some provocation, but I had no way of proving that that was the case. As I say, I'd travelled with other teams and I'd seen in a group of 30-odd people maybe seven or eight go down, but not 26, and all in such a short period of time after a, um, taking the luncheon. And again, the other thing was, again, I was pressed with time. I did do an inventory of who'd eaten what and so on. I couldn't, because everyone had eaten, there were three or four different choices for lunch. So there wasn't a common denominator in the food that I could find. So there possibly was a common denominator, either something in the water or something in the, in the, in the drinks. And that was the only potential. We had a touring party of 37, including management. So 26 out of the 37 were affected. With 26 of the touring party taken sick, this was when the hotel, who were deeply embarrassed by this tragedy unfolding in front of their eyes, went on the attack, as Alex Braun explains. I stayed in South Africa after that time, and I spent a lot of time at that hotel, and I spoke to the manager. And the manager said that he that they had found a bottle of peri-peri in one of the players' rooms that was a bit tainted, and they'd got it tested, and it had some kind of food poisoning in it, or there was some issue with it that would have caused food poisoning. And there was a talk that some of them had snuck out to a a burger shop down in Santon, which is just near where they were staying in uh, in Johannesburg, and some of the, and they'd had some cooked sort of peri-peri sauce or something, and that's how they'd got sick. Chief rugby reporter for the Sunday Times in South Africa, Dan Retief, who's written a book on that World Cup campaign, is certain that the poison claims are just a fabrication and believes the hotel manager's account about the peri-peri bottles as the most likely source of illness. Yeah, I'm convinced it wasn't. You know, I, I know the, the people in the hotel were really very well for many years. And in fact, they found these uh, contaminated bottles of peri-peri sauce uh, that gets put on fish in South Africa. You know, it's a very hot, hot sauce that people have, you know. But even he admitted that, you know, by the time they cleaned the All Blacks rooms and they found these bottles of peri-peri sauce, from a takeaway fish shop. Now, even by then, you know, the little bottles had been there for more than 24 hours. So whether they were contaminated when when they ate them or whether they became contaminated because they'd been opened 
and standing in the heat. Nobody will ever know. However, All Blacks media manager at the time, Rick Salizzo, denies that anyone ever even opened their peri-peri bottles. So it was purely a fabricated attack by the hotel to try and cover their own backs. The hotel were really worried because, you know, as an organisation, and I get it from their perspective, it's like, it's really important to them to play this role hosting um, the World Cup finalists. And then when we all go down sick, they're instantly trying to deflect responsibility. And I remember when it all broke, and the, the hotel manager was a lovely guy, but he was talking about, oh, we found bottles of Portuguese spices or something in everyone's room. That's why they got sick. And I'm like, no, that <laughs> we'd all been given this stuff on a visit earlier in the week and none of us wanted to touch it. So we just left it in the hotel. <laughs> that, that, that had nothing to do with it. And that was like, you know, three days earlier. With 26 members of the touring party battling serious illness, on Friday morning, 24 hours before the World Cup final, the management team had to make a decision on whether to announce their issues to the world, as Brian Lahore explains. We had two options, to tell everyone that we were sick and for the South Africans to get uh, some sort of a psychological advantage, or go quiet and, and, and say nothing and then people will find out later and, and accuse us of making excuses. If you had asked me what the score was going to be on Saturday morning, I would have said about 30 to South Africa and nil New Zealand. That's how I felt the guys, you know, were how, how well they were at that point. So Litzo recalls how they decided that word couldn't get out to anyone that they were struggling and also how close it got to the All Blacks trying to call off the final in its entirety. And then we had some conversation around, do we go to... Back then it was the IRB. Do we tell them that we can't play on Saturday? And we had a, a really robust discussion about whether we were going to be able to field a team to play competitively on, on the Saturday. And then that came to an end where, I can't remember if it was Laurie or, or Colin or whatever, it's like, nah, we just front up regardless. So the, the, the strategy was, we keep this in house because we don't want anyone to know that we're struggling. We can't talk to the World Rugby because we don't want to let on to anyone that we're in this situation. And somehow we get on the field. Journalist Alex Braun, who was shadowing the team throughout the World Cup, remembers the efforts of the All Blacks management to keep the poisoning story from ever getting out. They knew they were sick, they knew they were crook. They were trying to keep it under wraps because they didn't want to make excuses. And they were all also very, very worried about you know, how it would unsettle the team and disrupt the team. But about, you know, I spoke to Sean about 11 a.m. on the Friday, and it was already clear that some of them were already sick then, were already suffering. And I also remember the manager at that time coming to Sean, and he said, he said to me on the Friday afternoon, he said, you boys have done this, you boys have done this. And I don't know whether he meant Australia or South Africa or whatever, but he, he knew something was going on on Friday afternoon. So, you know, the All Blacks were already concerned at that point in time. Thoughts quickly turned to how the team would do their last training session. With the majority of the team still unable to train due to illness, team manager Brian Lahore remembers that ghastly day's training. We went to training as, as per normal. Captain's run. Oh, it was just hopeless. We, we didn't train. There was no way the guys could even run. But they were like dogs in the shade. They just went to the first tree and sat under the tree. <laughs> Rick Salizzo also remembers the day. We didn't do a traditional captain's run at the ground. And it might have been that we didn't want to really show our hand because we knew at Ellis Park there was a million people watching us. So 
we, from memory, we drove to a park, just a park, and went for a walk, threw a ball around. Jeff, Wilson, and Mertz were still really struggling, so they couldn't get out of the bus. So I've got this vision of the two of them just covered in jackets, shivering. But, you know, there was no thought from the team of leaving them in the hotel. It's like, you know, just suck it up, fellas. And um, so they, they were on the bus, but they didn't get off the bus. And then I used to sit next to Fitzy on the bus. Fitzy had said to everyone that he was fine, that he wasn't sick. And then Fitzy just turned around and said to me, Ricardo, I've got it too, but don't tell anyone. So um, because he just sort of felt that it was really important that he showed that he was okay. Saturday the 24th of June, 1995, Johannesburg, South Africa. A sold-out Ellis Park Stadium were eagerly awaiting the arrival of the two greatest teams in the world for the World Cup Final. Alex Braun gives us an insight into what the atmosphere was like in the stadium during build-up. I've never been anywhere in my life where the whole of a country was just focused on one moment so totally. And every single thing around South Africa in that week was all about the World Cup leading up to the World Cup. Everything was just hinging on that moment. And it was a game where basically a great team, one of the greatest teams of all time, that 1995 World Club all-black team, was beaten by another by a country because they weren't just competing against 15 men on the field. They were competing against a country and they were competing against one of the legendary leaders of all time, Nelson Mandela. So, you know, the whole week coming up to that uh, that final was incredible. And then the final itself, how can, how can I explain to you the moments when you're sitting there, you know, he's sitting there in that stadium and Mandela comes out with Francois Pinar's jersey on. I mean, you cannot believe it. You cannot believe what the incredible emotion, the incredible feeling it was to see that. The Springbok jersey, the most hated emblem of apartheid, the most hated symbol of apartheid. Nelson Mandela walking out with that jersey on his back was just an incredible moment. And I think that was the moment when the All Blacks lost it, when they saw Mandela there and they were shaking hands with Mandela in that Springbok jersey. And then other things that the plane flying over the top, I mean, no one really about the plane flying over the top. And if you watch Invictus, um, the Clint Eastwood movie, they're kind of not, when that plane came, there's this plane gonna crash into us, is it a terrorist attack, what's going on? No one did, you know, it flew like 20 meters above our heads. And I mean, the whole thing was just absolutely extraordinary. And, and certainly for me, I will never ever forget that week. I'll never forget that day. And I'll never forget the moment after the after the Springboks won. It was just absolutely incredible. All Black skipper Sean Fitzpatrick also recalls the incredible role Nelson Mandela played that day. You know, for me, I'll always say it was the greatest World Cup I ever went to or played at. You know, the whole country um, got behind the Springbok team. And it was us us against sort of 40, 50 million people, really. You know, as soon as uh, the great Nelson Mandela said, you know, one team, one country... Uh, they had the full support of everyone in South Africa. And and we noticed that. And I look back and, you know, maybe things that we should have done differently. You know, for me, the underlying memory was Mandela walking onto the stadium, into Alice Park, wearing that jersey of, of Francoise and, and listening to the crowd chanting his name. South African fly half Joel Stransky, who scored all of his team's points during that final, 
also recalls the magical impact Nelson Mandela had on the final. It started much earlier in the week than that. You know, we, we saw, and, and really on the back of Nelson Mandela's unbelievable stance around supporting this rugby team, we saw during the week a, a nation unite around a, a rugby team. We saw our support base grow from predominantly white South Africans to, 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 you know, to people of all colors and races. And, and I think after the game, Blacks and whites, coloreds and Indians, wherever it was, celebrated together, and, and I think those are for me the scenes that will will live on, and 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 and, and that should be etched in in all our memories. For him to wear a Springbok shirt of any number, to come into our change room and wish us luck, and to walk out onto the field and show that to, you know, 50 million South Africans was just incredibly inspiring. Rory Stain, who was still disgusted by the fact that his fellow countrymen had deliberately poisoned the All Blacks recalls his emotional recollections in the build-up to kickoff. It was one of the toughest few days of my life. I had to endure accusations of complicity in this by a New Zealand official, and I was very angry that this was allowed to happen in my country to people in my care. When the All Blacks took to the field, I wanted them to win. It was only when I heard that huge crowd of mainly white South Africans start to chant the president's name that my patriotism returned. A chance now for the New Zealanders to throw down the challenge just as the South Africans have been doing throughout all the pre-match celebrations. Jonah Lamu absolutely living the haka. When the match did eventually get underway, even the referee that day, Ed Morrison, realised that something wasn't quite right with a number of the All Blacks players. I remember after just a couple of scrums early in the game, uh, Steve McDowell was, 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 was really sweating profusely. Uh, and then I witnessed Jeff Wilson on the right wing, or, or on the wing, just being, being sick, really. Uh, and I thought, that's strange. But what about the South African players? Did Joel Stransky know that the All Blacks were suffering? No, you know, it's it's for, for us. It was not. It wasn't about the All Blacks. It was about us. About our self belief. We trained incredibly hard, as I said earlier. Kitchen always said that it would be the fittest team that won the World Cup. And when we got into extra time, you know, our just our belief grew even further. And uh, only afterwards did we hear that of of, of, of the so-called Susie and food poisoning story. <laughs> and what was the view from the press box at Ellis Park? Did they have any inclinations that something was wrong with the Kiwis? During the match, uh, there was no indication that there was anything wrong in the All Black side. Uh, the only player that was substituted uh, reasonably early was Jeff Wilson, the wing. Uh, and subsequent to that, uh, you know, the story broke. It didn't break at the press conference even right afterwards, you know. And then the word started to fill out, uh, filter back that the All Blacks were complaining about having been poisoned. Uh, by this mystery person called Susie, uh, which was Laurie May's story. Back it comes to Stransky. Up goes the kick. Up goes the walls. Stransky has kicked his head. And with two minutes gone in the second period of extra time, South Africa's dream is alive once more. Well, the match ended up going to extra time, and the Springbok hero, Joel Stransky, ended up scoring a drop goal in the dying minutes of additional time to give South Africa a 15-12 victory and their first World Cup title. Back it comes to Jus van der Westhuizen. Little knock forward, but that's it! South Africa have won the World Cup 
having been back in international rugby for less than three years and having not taken part in the first two competitions at their first attempt they have stolen the crown unbelievable scenes all around the park Francois Kina as you can see absolutely in tears but if the Kiwis hadn't been poisoned would they have won that title his head coach Laurie May look if we had been 100% fit I can't say that we would have won that game I think all the indications are that we, we, we were that close to winning it anyway that we probably would have, but you can't say that. Love to have won that World Cup for New Zealand rugby, but uh, it wasn't to be. You know, obviously the, the vomiting and so on took over with uh, two or three of them and, and they were they were severely weakened uh, by that stage. Pretty, pretty much all of them were out to it. And the biggest problem at that stage, uh, many of the effects of the actual food poisoning had, had worn off by then. But you can, after having that, you can never really fully hydrate, not not in the space of 24 hours. And that was one of the issues. They were weak. Yes, their energy levels were down. There's no question about that. How big an effect did the poisoning seem to have on the All Blacks' performance in that final? Alex Braun isn't convinced that that was the main distraction for the All Blacks. I don't know. Listen, the All Blacks were off. The All Blacks were off, whether it was the food poisoning, whether it was the overall day. I think it was Mandela in the jersey that really, really got to them because they kind of, it's like you just said before, that they felt it was destiny. And it's almost like, hold on, if we, if, if we beat the box here, we're beating Mandela. We are holding back the development and progress of a country if we do this. And I just don't believe the All Blacks had the ability to shut that out of their mind. I mean, you think about the guys who were in that team, you know, Josh Cronfield, um, Sean Fitzpatrick, Christian Cullen, Jonah Lomi, you go, you know, Josh Cronfield, I mean, he's a fantastic guy and a really interesting guy. You're going to tell me that Josh Cronfield wasn't affected by that? He had a very, very quiet game in that World Cup. So in that World Cup final. So I just think, I don't know, the All Blacks weren't at 100%. The box played a very, very smart game. And, you know, Joel kicked a field goal. If they're not poisoned, do they win? I don't know. Freddie, it's the great imponderable. We'll never, never, never know, really. We'll never know. Sadly for the All Blacks, their day was going to go from bad to worse at the post-match dinner function, which was hosted by the controversial Africana, South African rugby president, Dr. Louis Late. Alex Braun, who would later work for Dr. Late, recalls how the doctor then took over the proceedings and managed to somehow be even more divisive and controversial with his speech, leading to the walkout of the all-black side. Honestly, working for Dr. Late was like doing PR for the Nazi party. It seriously was. I mean, you know, Dr. Late, the things that he had done, the things that he had said, the reputation around him, the thing that he wanted to retain the old anthem, all those things, basically. Listen, some people did walk out. There's absolutely 100% walk out. It wasn't a mass group walkout, no way. I remember a couple of players, I think uh, Craig Dowd got up and walked out. Um, I think a couple of other players, a couple of the English players got up and walked out. Without a doubt, there was a walkout for sure at that dinner, 100%. You know, it was very difficult for the All Blacks, very, very difficult for the All Blacks to swallow that they'd lost that World Cup, to then have the whole thing of the, um, you know, to have the whole thing of the poisoning and then to be getting mocked at the dinner afterwards. Dan Retief, the chief rugby reporter for the Sunday Times, also recalls witnessing the walkout firsthand. I arrived at the venue a little bit late, uh, and uh, to find the All Blacks walking out, uh, Colin Meads came walking by with full Sean Fitzpatrick, a bastard, insulted us, and he sort of brushed by, you know. And then I noticed the, the England team came out, the French team came out, 
And then I put two and two together by asking some questions in a country that felt that uh, Dr. Lee Lake had been over the top and that it, uh, it, uh, it'd been bragging and that he'd been arrogant and that he'd insulted the All Blacks. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com, Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. I was traveling internationally last year. I was in Mallorca. I didn't know the island well. I said, let me head to the north, head towards the water. Let me go on Hotels.com and see what they have available. Something preferably on the beach, maybe even a gym. Not only did I get those things, there was a kid's session with exercise, gymnastics in the water, pony rides, a train. It had everything, and I didn't even want any of those things. But at least I knew they were there just in case I changed my mind. And now finding the perfect hotel has never been easier thanks to the Hotels.com app. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly, right, all-inclusive or a relaxing spa weekend, you can find exactly what you need and compare hotel prices, ratings, and amenities side by side. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. After experiencing the most torrid week imaginable, the All Blacks were thankful to be able to escape the clutches of the World Cup and South Africa in general. However, the question on everyone's lips when they arrived back in New Zealand was, what truly happened to the team on that Thursday when 26 of the players fell ill? Were they poisoned deliberately or by accident? If deliberately, were the orders direct from the government or the South African Rugby Union, aka Dr. Late? Or was it someone in the hotel? Or was there another possible guilty party? Brian Lahore believes that the hotel management were negligent as they refused to allow the All Blacks to bring in their own chef during that final week. After that semi-final game, the management sat down and said, look, we've got to think this through. We are possibly in a position of vulnerability. Uh, the All Blacks had been nobbled once before, I think, in Australia. And we thought that if we had our own chef, we uh, that would help us uh, quite a lot during that last week. Uh, but the uh, hotel that we were staying at wouldn't wear it at all. So uh, they w- wouldn't allow us to have our own chef or have another guy. But, but the Aussies, obviously, yeah. had... Uh, had him during the, the period of uh, the tour. Dr. Bowen also remembers the hotel blocking the private chef's arrival. The chef had agreed to come up, but when I put it to the hotel management, the hotel we were staying in, uh, I met a, a brick wall. But journalist Alex Braun, who was also working for the SARU, didn't think it was the hotel who were blocking the chef's path, 
but a much more powerful figure in South African rugby. I think they might have tried to bring the chef. I don't think the hotel would have blocked it. You've got to remember Louis Late was still very involved then in South African rugby and you wouldn't put it past Dr. Late to have, have pulled some tricks to make sure the guy didn't go there. Laurie Maines believes it was a far bigger issue than just the hotel and Dr. Late working together. He believes that there was an international crime ring and corrupt betting syndicate involved in the poisoning of his team. I'm a pretty emotional sort of a person and, and pretty committed. And it's very hard for me to let injustices as I see them, uh, maybe not always I'm right, but injustices as I see it, it's very hard for me to let them go. The New Zealand Rugby Union, I think, took a responsible attitude and did not uh, press the issue. But I just could not let it go. And... and um, my, my wife uh, knew a private investigator in South Africa, and this was after we came home, and we contacted this private investigator and simply asked him to see what he could find out, if anything, because I knew all the doors would be shut. He had moderate success in that he, he did establish that uh, a black lady had been employed by the hotel two days before we arrived, and the day after we got sick, she disappeared completely. It appears uh, from our own investigations that the tea and coffee, something had been put in the tea and coffee. Those players that never had that batch of tea and coffee weren't ill. The ones that did were. The word on the street in financial circles in London was that uh, bookmakers had been at the back of it. All black flanker Paul Henderson also recalled in the week of the final that he ran into an English bookie who was staying in the hotel. He was heavy, had days of stubble and was sweating profusely, who claimed that his business would go under if the All Blacks won that tournament. Henderson recalls, he was freaking out and saying all these things. He said he was going to go under because if the All Blacks won and he had to honour his bets, then he was out the back door. Did I go up to a room and meet an English bookie? Yes. Did he say all those things? Yes. Was he freaking out that he was going to be tipped over because he had to honour all the bets on the All Blacks? Yes. That's the way it was. He was talking about it, freaking about it. And if anyone's going to have the motivation, then it would have had to be him. But how does one go about poisoning tea and coffee without any player noticing something odd about the appearance or taste? Dr. Bowen seems to think he has the answer. I did speak to a um, number of uh, South Africans and subsequently, and they said that there is a particular vegetable poison which occurs naturally in South Africa, which you could put into a drink, which is odorless, um, colourless and, and easy to easy to use. So. Laurie also believes that the hotel knew exactly what was going on and were complacent, although they deny any involvement, and he believes he has the evidence to prove it. A reasonable friend of mine and a very close friend of Grant Fox's, uh, as a matter of fact, was due to play golf with, I think he was the PR manager for the hotel chain, and he waited an hour for this guy to arrive, and, and he apologised to uh, this gentleman, saying that uh, they'd been having a meeting trying to determine how the All Blacks got sick and uh, hence he was late for his golf. Now, that was just confirmation to me that, yes, they knew all about it, even though they deny it. To this day, they will deny it. That gentleman will deny it. But that's what was said and, and they were all very much aware of it. Dan Retief, however, believes that the hotel had nothing whatsoever to do with the poisoning and if there was a poisoning, which he's not convinced about, then it was the players who poisoned themselves. And I spoke to the hotel manager uh, where the All Blacks were staying, and, and he's adamant uh, that if there was any food poisoning, it's because they went out to a takeaway fish and, fish and chip shop. So, you know, that there was no mystery poisoning going on. 
Uh, and you know what? I, I just think it's too far-fetched. I don't believe it at all. I think there's no doubt that some of the players were not as well as they could have been, uh, and that has been, uh, been confirmed over the years. But uh, some of them had nothing wrong with them, you know, so it seems like it might have been a little group uh, that ate the wrong food. You know, for instance, Ian Jones, their, their lock forward, had one of the best games of his entire life. Um, you know, there didn't seem to be much from Jones and Lomel. So it, it happened, um, and I, I still don't think it was deliberately done, you know. Dan also claims that the South Africans suffered food poisoning a few days before their opening match and never complained about it. The thing that emerged years later is that the Springboks had a, had a bout of food poisoning before the opening game against Australia, you know, so, uh, and they never said anything about that. However, Alex Braun, who was very friendly with a lot of the South African team and ended up working for them shortly afterwards for over five years, denies that the South Africans were poisoned. Listen, I wouldn't give a lot of truth to that at all. I think that was just a way of sort of saying, oh, well, the All Blacks had their issues. We had our issues as well. I mean, I don't. I remember being in, around the boys a couple of time, a couple of days before that. There was no mention of any sickness with anybody. And Mornay is a very upfront guy. Mornay would have said something. So I don't believe there was an issue at all there. That, that were fit and firing in that game. And what about the Kiwi journalist Wynne Gray's claim that there was just a bug going around the hotel at the time? as he hadn't shared a dining room with the Kiwis, but also was violently ill in the following days. Alex Braun doesn't think Wynn had a bug. He thinks he was poisoned. Yeah, listen, that's that's pretty well news to me. I, so I was in that hotel and I didn't come down with anything, but also the way that they did the catering there, um, the All Bucks were in one room and then everybody else sort of ate in the next room. So, you know, it's... And Howard... Susie or whatever her name know know which exactly which tea was going where or which coffee was going where. So there's absolutely, there's absolutely every chance in the world some of the All Blacks talk calls so it could have been dabbled 100%. You know, and I would have to say too, it's not, it wasn't normal for people to get food poisoning. It wasn't normal at, at all. So the, the standards of the accommodation, the standards of the hygiene, everything, everybody was very, very well looked after at that World Cup. That's why it was so strange for the All Blacks to get sick the way that they did. The whole of South Africa was terrified of they were going to lose, the box were going to lose. They were terrified the box were going to lose. And I remember the ads, they did sort of these ads basically at the time, basically everybody stop Jonah, everybody stop Jonah. With You know, the whole country's got to tackle Jonah. We've all got to tackle Jonah. You know, and you just remember that. So, and I remember, you know, I, I do remember around that time, the All Blacks were concerned that somebody might try to do something to Jonah, to damage him or to hurt him or do something, you know, that something. So they were very wary when the team was leaving the hotel and coming back to the hotel, they had some extra security guards, guys stand, standing around because they were worried that, that, you know, something might happen to Jonah. Someone might, you know, knife him or something. They were concerned for that. And, and listen, it's, it's not impossible because there was such a fever in the, in the country at the time. And people were so terrified that Jonah Lomu was going to kill their dreams that, you know, that, that it's, it's possible anything could have happened at that time. And, you know, the All Blacks actually handled themselves remarkably well. If you think about the situation that they were in and the incredible pressure that they were under, you know, I thought they did a lot of credit to themselves and their country, the way that they reacted and also the way they had their, held their head, heads high afterwards, really. You know, it wasn't them who believed about the poisoning. You know, Laurie went nuts about it, but the rest of them, you know, acknowledged and admitted it and just said congratulations to the box. However, Dan Retief will not shift on his position of denial until he sees verified evidence that somebody deliberately poisoned the team. Until then, 
He thinks this whole Susie poisoning is an excuse by Laurie Maines to try and cover his own failures as a coach in that final. You know, I, I think that when you say something like that, you must say, look, I took it to this laboratory and they confirmed that my players were uh, were poisoned and here is the proof and that's never happened. You know, maybe the shock of losing a final, they thought they would win. They had to go back to New Zealand, which is never present for normal vaccines. Alex Braun is possibly one of the best qualified people to give an honest opinion as he had no allegiance to either team. As an Australian who worked for both sides, he's convinced that it was under the direct orders of the SARU president, Dr. Late, that the poisoning took place. <laughs> I think it's a bit closer to home than that. I don't think it was the betting syndicate. I think it's a bit closer to home than that. I think it was Dr. Late, honestly. I think probably. Probably it was Dr. Late. Or if it wasn't, it was someone doing trying to do a favour for... So, I mean, listen, I can tell you one thing, 100%. The Springbok team would not have had anything to do with it at all. Mornay Duplessis, Kitch Christie, Francois Pinard, those guys would have had nothing to do with it at all, 100%. I'm absolutely sure of that. But did Saru or someone at Saru or did Louis Late or an associate of Louis Late or a chair or a number member of the board or another head of a local provincial union um, organise it? It happened, 100%. It was acknowledged, essentially, that there was a Susie and that the Susie did poison them and that they were poisoned. You know, whoever it was, Susie was there. She did poison the tea and the the boys did get sick. So, you know, the All Blacks weren't making it up. From the evidence and witness accounts we've heard, it's hard to deny that the All Blacks were deliberately poisoned on that Thursday lunchtime and that their subsequent illnesses had an impact on their performance in that final. Was the poisoning from the orders of Dr. Late and the SARU, or from an international corrupt betting syndicate who needed the All Blacks to lose at all costs? We'll never truly know. However, we leave you with the words of Nelson Mandela's close protection officer and All Black security guard Rory Stain, who perfectly encapsulates the spirit of Mandela's rainbow nation with his summary on the scandal. To my fellow South Africans, I want to say this. Stop all those cheap jokes about Susie, the food poisoning, and whinging kiwis. It happened. There's no doubt that the All Blacks were poisoned two days before the final. The All Black team never whinged about it. If anyone whinged, it was their media, and boy, can they whinge. In fact, the New Zealand team management took a decision not to use the poisoning as an excuse, not to even mention it. It was only when the New Zealand media got wind of it and directly asked the team management at media conferences that they spoke about it. We must learn to be gracious winners. We must shed our boorish image. Our victory over such a magnificent side makes it that much more of an achievement. And the 95 All Blacks were that, a magnificent side. There it is. Francois Pinar and Nelson Mandela is cheering along with the whole of the stadium. Sea of flags, wonderful moment for the whole of South Africa. We hardly believed it could happen for them, but it has. And now the celebrations, I'm sure, will go on for at least a week.
This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, enter the kingdom in IMAX on May 10th and in theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. 